well. And so what Jesus would do is he would uh, typically uh, go into an area as he began preaching. Uh, he would go to the synagogue and he would preach. And the way he would do that would be generally they would hand him as the guest uh, and, uh, to speak. They'd hand him the, the scriptures to read. And as he read the scriptures, he'd be standing. But then as he began to teach, he would sit. Kind of different than what we are accustomed to. And, and then the teaching would begin. And he also went proclaiming. Meaning it implies that not just teaching in the synagogues, but outside the synagogues. Proclaiming, again, the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. During this time, in this first part of chapter 4, Jesus, it's pointed out, calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John to begin following him on a regular basis. And... That, that happens. And then again, they're going throughout all of Galilee teaching and, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It also very clearly points out that all the, the people that were brought to him that were sick, didn't matter what they had, it could be uh, demonic, physical, it didn't matter what it was, Jesus was healing them all. People will come back and say, is that the way it should be all the time where everybody that... that, that comes close to the, to the Word of God or Jesus should be healed? And the answer is no. In fact, Jesus didn't heal everybody all the time. I want you to think about one particular situation at the pool of, uh, one of the pools where they would go to, 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 to be, you know, pray for healing where lame people would be left and there would be a swirling of the waters. And the, the, the custom was if you could get into the water in time... You, you could be healed. And there were more people than there, you know, there were. Jesus asked one man there, uh, do you want to be healed? You want, and, and it was kind of like, well, I have nobody to get me down to the water. The indication was we're not really sure what his attitude about being healed was. Maybe he was at this point content with the fact that this life was what he had. But Jesus basically tells him, stand up and walk. And he picked up his bed and he walked away. You know, that was the only person healed right then. He didn't heal everybody else. So why are all of these healings? I want you to understand. God is allowing people to see clearly. This man is like nothing you have ever seen or heard before. And that he has got the authority working through him. If he says the kingdom of God is at hand, is near than it is. And you can bank on it and trust in it. And as he proclaims this, the crowds grow. From all of the Galilee area from, and, and then further uh, to the east and to the north from uh, Decapolis, which would be up, clear up to where t- today it would be Damascus. And it was Damascus then for that matter. And, and all the way down into the, the eastern part of, of the, what is uh, the, the, on the other side of the Jordan River. And then actually uh, the area immediately beyond the Jordan, which was a specific area, as well as Jerusalem and Judea. And, and people uh, frequently say, who is the audience for the Sermon on the Mount? I just described it to you. People from all over this area. 
Now, this has been a general kind of outline to what was happening. This is how Jesus was presenting the gospel of the kingdom. Teaching into the synagogues, proclaiming it uh, literally in the fields, uh, wherever he had an audience. And now Matthew takes one particular instance to record and share with us what one of the teachings would be like. And we begin with the fact that he's, he's in the hill, obviously in the Galilean hillside. It says that he went up the hillside and, 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 and you get that picture. And, and be careful. And it's automatic for me. As soon as somebody says, and he began to preach in the Sermon on the Mount, I immediately see the movie pictures that have all about Jesus. It has him standing and walking around and, and, and that's not what happened. It says, and Luke actually adds to this, that he found a level place, a plain or actually a plateau, a level place in the hillside. And, he, and it says he went there as he saw the crowds gathering. And, you know, look at how it says, uh, as they found this area, it says, he sat down. Now, what did I just tell you about sitting down and teaching? This was a signal to everybody. He's going to teach. And they gathered around. And when it says the disciples, again, Luke adds multitudes of people. Disciples at this, people, at this point were not specifically the, the twelve, but the people who were following after him, listening to his teaching, and in many cases proclaiming, this man speaks with an authority that we've never seen before. We've never heard So his audience was a varied crowd. Could have been you know, Jews from all over this area as well as Gentiles. In fact, we're pretty sure that it would have been. He sat down. The cue for his teaching time was there. His disciples uh, gathering around in significant numbers. And they come to him recognizing that as he sat down, as they came to him, they're acknowledging he's the teacher. He's the one we've come to hear. Now, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, question for us at this point. Uh, you know, uh, it says he opened his mouth and taught them. Uh, and I put in my, my notes as he has done many times before already. And he would continue to do after this. This is one picture of what he has been doing. And what is followed is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting, you will not find that other than in, 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 in our, our chapter headings that we put in there. Nowhere in Matthew does it say that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, why do we call it that? Well, because uh, one of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo of, of North Africa, uh, in the third or the fourth and fifth century, actually, the 300, 400s, uh, called it that. And he looked at it and said in its context and all that it, it, it has all of the dynamics of a message and a sermon of one time. Some people think, well, maybe it's a collection of things that he spoke, like a bunch of Proverbs brought together. I, I'm more inclined to agree with Augustine at this point. I believe it was the context and a picture of what would have been a typical sermon that Jesus might have, have shared, a typical teaching that he would have proclaimed to them. And so, our key to understanding this is, is that 
this is the gospel of the kingdom that he's teaching them. We want a picture of what, he, what the gospel of the kingdom is? The Sermon on the Mount. Many opinions as to the purpose. Uh, there's, uh, uh, I drew from uh, multiple sources for this, but uh, C.A. Carson uh, has a, uh, one of the more contemporary uh, uh, commentaries uh, considered to be one of the more scholarly efforts out in, in this generation on Matthew. John uh, Stott, who many of you are familiar with. And I, I will share with you, I, even, I, I have it here because I may be able to, I, I may use it yet this morning. But this is one of the first books that, that uh, I bought new. I actually bought it before I was a believer. And it's Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to tell you, of all the books that I have, this has got more crazy highlighting and notes than lots. And you'll, if you look at it, you'll see, oh, some of the highlighting is marker, or you know, highlight marker, or others pins and stuff like that. Each time you go through it, you kind of find out something different. And again, even true now. And I would have to say that that as, as I'm going through the Sermon on the Mount, one of my trusted resources is going to be this book uh, as I use it. But uh, there were several opinions about the purpose of, of, of the, the teachings that have been expressed over the, the, the centuries and even more recently. For instance, one is, is, is a kind of a liberal look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the, the, the term social gospel. But uh, it says, according to the liberal, the sermon is a blueprint for the reorganization of society. A code of ethics in conformity with with which both individuals and nations must live if they hope to bring in the kingdom of God on earth. And putting it all into our camp, if we would just live out the sermon uh, and do unto others as we would have them do unto us and, 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 and... treat each other with respect, that we will usher in the kingdom of God right here, right now, because that's, that's where it's at. And that's a liberal point of view. Now, by the way, you know, I, I will say that there is some blueprints here, if you will, for uh, uh, things, but it's, it's not to usher in the kingdom now. The kingdom comes through Jesus Christ. At the point in time that He's there, the kingdom is near. The kingdom comes in through the church as we receive Jesus Christ. We become a part of the kingdom. But the fullness of the kingdom comes at His second coming. He ushers in, not us. Roman Catholics will actually take the Sermon on the Mount. There's a whole catechism teaching on it that basically uses it as as the instruction, this is what you have to do to be saved. And in, 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 in general terms, it's basically, it's up to you. To, to, to get this right. It's your works that will get you right before the throne of God. That is not where it is. There are others that, that look at it and say, oh, this deals with the... Jesus is... You know, Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. True. Okay? Therefore, this is what the Jews will need to do and how they will need to live. And this is a picture of the millennium 
when the Jews and their kingdoms restored. This, no, it's not that either. What this is, and 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 I I, I have to say I, I I didn't come up with this. I took this from 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 Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, in fact, just on something that he said at the conference we were just at, and that is that it is the Christian manifesto. A manifesto is something that declares what something is and what you're going to do about it and how you're going to act it out. It's, uh, it could even call it a, a, you know, a, a picture of how the, the ministry is, is, is applied when a believer truly believes. And so he used the term Christian manifesto and then he, in another place he used the, the, the phrase manifesto of Jesus Christ. But it's, the, the picture was that he was getting at was that it's more than a list, and this is another way of people have looked at it. You'll, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it'll take you about 10, 12 minutes if you read like I read. Now, and I want to encourage you at this point to read like I read. And, I, and not that I, you should read everything this way, but I'm, I'm, I'm gifted with, with uh, an approach from, from uh, ADHD and all these other, where I unfortunately have to read every word of anything that I read. And even then, sometimes I get to the bottom of the page and I'm not sure if I read it or not. So, I have to read every word. In fact, there are times and it drives my wife nuts because I'll be sitting there mouthing the words as I read. You know, and it, when we first got married, she would say, oh dear, you need to read this. And she's reading something in the newspaper or an article and she'll ask me to kind of look, peer over her shoulder and the next thing you know, your foot's tapping, her fingers are tapping because she's waiting for me to, to get on so that she can turn the page. Finally, she learned, you know, it didn't take long. She says, dear, when I'm done with this, you should read this. You know? But this is one of those things, even reading every word, it really won't take you that long to read the whole thing in concert. And I'll use that word again because it's one of the things the way... Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes what's happening here as a concert of teaching. Sinclair uh, Ferguson was pointing out that there's that sense where if you read through it, you come to the conclusion that there's no way I could be successful in all of this. That's right. There is no way you can. But as the Holy Spirit works in you, as you grow in Christ over a period of time and a season of life until Christ takes us home or He comes for us uh, in the rapture, until that point in time, we would, we, we would grow in our understanding of how to, to see this, to, to use it, and to apply it into our lives. It's not a list of ideals. That's what people will look at and say, well, see, it's not anything that anyone, you know, nobody can possibly do all of this and, and keep it right. Therefore, it's a set of ideals, things to look to as that would be, if you could just reach the ideal, that would be it. And what Sinclair Ferguson was concerned about was that took it out of the category of, of that intensity of God-breathed words. And it's just a set of ideals. God says, and, and, and we say, we're just saying it, we shall live by what? Every word. I read it. You know, we'll live by the words and precepts. Uh, no, this is, this is the Word of God. It's not a list of ideals. That it, it's the Word of God. For those who are called to follow, 
who confess Jesus Christ, who believe in their heart, to use the term that Jesus used with Nicodemus, born again. This is the way we are to look as to who we are and how we are to grow and to live for Christ. And how we are to treat each other. I want to make sure you understand it doesn't take that one position that, that where it doesn't tell us how to become a believer. In fact, one of the, the, the commentaries said, it doesn't tell us how to become a believer, but it tells us what a believer becomes. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it tells us what a believer will become, how he is to live out as a citizen in the kingdom of God in a fallen world. We are citizens in the kingdom of God in a fallen world. It's a, a way of challenging what is on your belief window and saying, does it measure up to what's on God's heart and desire? Are you willing to, to look at what your worldview is and, and, and take it to His Word and allow the Word to change and to shape the way you look at things? Because let's face it, we have, and, and this goes back to teaching that Spurgeon used, uh, you know, this is like a set of glasses. And you put them on and you filter everything through those glasses that has ever happened in your life as you look at the Word of God. We need to be able to take those glasses off and have them cleaned or whatever is necessary. Actually, I think it's relensed. And, 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 and read the Word of God and realize that it gives us a whole new way of looking. At the world, this is what uh, Francis Schaeffer was driving for, and, and most of his teaching was always pointed back towards the idea of creating what we call a Christian worldview. And here's the manifesto that helps us get a picture of that: the Sermon on the Mount. It, you know, Matthew's chapter five, six, and seven. They give us a detailed look at the transforming believer. A list of, of, of character and attributes that need to be developing in us and a number of windows to see the resulting behavior. What and how it will change us. I already mentioned that Martin Lloyd-Jones used the idea of a musical score, which I, I, I have to say has shaped the way I look at a, a lot of things anymore in the sense, and I've used the word frequently, that, that God has written a symphony before the foundation of the world, and he's now working it out uh, piece by piece, play by play. But if you don't see the whole, realizing that God in his sovereignty has a plan that will not be thwarted, that will be completed according to his word and according to his schedule, according to his timetable, uh, you miss as you get caught up in the details of day to day. You want to keep in mind, God is sovereign. God's in control. Even when I don't understand what's going on around me and the world around me, I can still rest with a confidence that God is in control. And so here's this musical score is a part of this symphony is the, is the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones used it in the sense of, of looking at it as a whole first. There's a, there's a whole picture. There are many smaller parts, but if you, if you don't catch the idea that it's, it's a collective together, you'll lose its impact. The only place that you'll be able to find 
the information as to how to live it out, how to be what God wants you to be. The only place you're going to find this, in fact, the last verse of chapter 5 tells us that we are to be holy as God is holy, be perfect as God is perfect. Again, it's one of those things, impossible for me. But through Jesus Christ, His sacrifice, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it becomes who I am becoming and yet who I already am. I know that's an confusing thing, but there's a thing going on in me that's already looked at as done. It's yet to happen, but and yet it's out there yet to happen and in the process of happening even now. And the only place I'm going to get direction to become what God wants me to be is from His Word. There is no other source given to man that reveals God as to who He really is, what He has planned, what He is doing, what He is going to do. If you look at the Word of God as one of many avenues, you're missing it. You're not going to get from it what you need to get from it. This is the only inspired Word of God. There is no other Gospels out there. I don't care what CNN says. I don't care what Discovery Channel says. I don't care what the History Channel says. Uh, There is no other source than the Word of God for understanding who God is and what His plan through Christ is for His church and His kingdom. These three chapters... If you look at them, you're going to find everything that's taught in these three chapters, you're going to find them expounded on again and again and again throughout the epistles. Oh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, a concise picture. Uh, again, a great musical score written for us to be able to see the things that Jesus was teaching. I think it's also important that we understand that the the kingdom of God is not something that's going to be found in this world. And what I mean by that is that it's not something that this world is going to generate or create. It is through Christ and Christ alone. In fact, even Pilate was saying, you're a king? King of what? You know, he says, where's your kingdom? He says, well, if my kingdom was of this earth, my, fi- my followers would rise up and fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, and that becomes something that we need to to grab a hold of and realize, uh, you know, as as we're you know we've had a phrase that we frequently use, uh, in the world but not of it. And I I, I recall at one point being the the, the 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 smart person that I tried to be, uh, that that's not that's a paraphrasing of thoughts and ideas. It's not an actual. Uh, scripture in and of itself. But let me tell you what's being said here. Go to Matthew, or John chapter 15. And uh, oh, we'll probably look at verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking to, to the disciples. Now, the specific disciples, the group, the apostles uh, to be. He's speaking to them on the night of his arrest. They're in the dinner and, and, and that they had together. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me 
before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or in chapter 17, starting at the 14th verse, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because, as Jesus is talking with the Father at this point, I have given them your word, referring to the disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. In the truth, your word is truth. It's the only source of truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus speaks not just here but over in many places that He was not calling the disciples into something that was of this world. It was otherworldly. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. Another picture that we're given is, is uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so, uh, what Peter's point out is we are exiles. We are sojourners. We're passing through uh, the perfect book that complements this whole thought, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, uh, written back in the, in the 1600s. But, the, the idea of, of what it is to be passing through this world as a believer and realizing there are a lot of things that would cause you to detour on your pursuit of God. And, and it's, it's just this powerful picture that you know Jesus is making sure don't rely on the things of the world or worldly understanding or worldly philosophies to understand my Word. Rely on what He has given us to understand His Word. And you can find this again in verses 14, chapters 14, 15, and 16, of, uh, and 17 really, of, of John, is that He has given us the Holy Spirit in us. So that as we begin to read the Word, it begins to make sense to us. As we begin to hear the Gospel proclaimed, it begins to make sense to us. And it is very interesting that stuff that I studied and looked at before I was ever a believer, in fact, at a point in time in my life where I used it to counter what believers would come to share with me to kind of show them what a scholar I could be. And, 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 and if you just looked at this with the right understanding and, and the time frame of it was written and, and all of the things that I thought you could understand from man's philosophy and man's history. And yet one day a man shares with me in a way that I had not heard before. Now, that sounds crazy because I think the passion that this man was sharing with me 
in his life had been shared with me before. But this was the point in time, I believe, a providential time of meeting. I sometimes believe that that day was, was a snow in just so that we would leave our businesses closed for a couple of hours and go and have a late breakfast and end up sitting in a crowded restaurant at a table with a guy I didn't know. And I walked away. I've shared this many times with you. I didn't have a miraculous... Well, actually I did, but I, I didn't have an immediate encounter in the sense of, of just falling on my knees and saying, okay, I give. And, and, and I've heard where that's happened with people. But for me, what it was was the challenge. Read the Gospel of John and see if you can't get a picture of feeling of John's passion. I'm not telling you you need to believe it. But can you see that the passion that John writes with isn't one of somebody who's trying to build a legend or pass a story on or create a religion, a new religion. He's recounting life events that happened to him. I read, I saw, and I believe that that's when God's opening my eyes to see His Word. And all of a sudden, little bits and pieces. And you know what? God just led person after person after person, situation after situation after situation into my life that added bits and pieces. And the more it was added, finally, August 15, 1976, 6.15 in the morning, I said, I give. You must be who you say you are. I don't get it. I don't understand this, 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 and this. But I understand this. There is a God who created everything and He's after me. And, he, and He's seeking me through Jesus Christ and His Word. And my life changed, quite obvious. Sermon on the Mount gives us a great amount of information to see the overall picture of what Jesus was preaching as the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. It's also a reflection, and again, remember, this is not a blueprint on how to become a Christian, but uh, a, 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 a statement, a, a concert, if you will, as to how a believer's lifestyle is different because he is a believer. And the lifestyle viewed by the world will ID us because of the way things change in us. Think of what Jesus said to, again, John chapter 13, where he's talking to them uh, about, he says, I'm giving you another command, you know, about loving one another. And, 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 and he adds to this picture the world is going to know who you are as my followers because of the way. You love one another. We can't have that love for one another that Jesus is talking about there until we receive the love He has from us, for us. And we realize He first loved us. And as we confess and believe and receive that, He then says there, there will be, not there needs to be, there will be a transformation begin 
where you start to look at the world differently because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as you continue to walk with the Lord, people are going to look and to see and say, you know, there is something different about that person or those people. You will be put to the test. Sometimes by your very best friends before you were a Christian. Sometimes by people that you work with. I had a situation uh, where the one place I worked, uh, I, I think almost everybody there made it a point at some place, at some point, to put a situation in front of me that would challenge me as to my faith and staying integral with what I was saying. It wasn't perfect by any means, but the neat thing that happened was that even when I blow it, I could go back to him and say, I want you to know that I'm sorry for, for being less than what I need to be for you to understand what my heart is trying to tell you. And you, it's amazing how that opens doors by itself. Uh, this is the same group that put the cross on my spray booth thinking that they were mocking me. And I looked at that as, as, as a, uh, a, a victory. They, there must be something happening. This, what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, this transition, this change of behavior, the way we look at things, the way we do things, becomes the behavior, the lifestyle that causes the world to look and say, what's the reason for the way you are? Why do you believe what you believe? They see you in a time of crisis and, and they look at you and, and, and it's completely different for you than it is, seems to be for other people. They say, why? Maybe you'll hear what I finally heard from uh, my uh, nephew's wife, who at the time that, that this statement was, was made was flirting with Wicca, uh, a very pagan, worldly, earthy religion. And uh, she commented to her mother-in-law, my wife's twin sister, as I had just preached my son's funeral, she says, Uncle Bob really believes this, doesn't he? She had seen me over and over and over again in many situations. She had seen me change in my life. And there she saw the opportunity to see me in a time of, of where other people would be looking at something one way that she could see the hope that was in me. This is what Peter said would happen. You start to live a life that, that is reflective of this, for instance, musical overture that is written, the Sermon on the Mount, or other collections of, of thoughts in the, in the Scripture. And you start to live it out. The Holy Spirit starts to work it out in you. People will see that you are different. Some people will, will, will hate you. Some people will actually look at you and respect you. Some people will actually come and ask you. Again, please understand on all of this, we're not acting in our own strength. We are acting in the power of the Holy Spirit in us 
The more we yield to that, the more transitioning will happen. Now, I even believe the yielding comes through the power of the Holy Spirit because I am convinced, and this is something I share frequently from the pulpit and in Bible studies, it's, it's not my saying, it's A.W. Tozer's saying, but there was a point in, in, in the latter part of his life one of the men who, who people have looked at as one of the giants of Christian, Christianity in the sense of his writing and his, and his passion for the Lord and, and, the, and, and, and just you know, the different things that, he, that God used him for. And, and, and at the end of his life, at the end of his walk, he is still praying this prayer. God, give me the desire to desire you more. I can't generate that. I even need that from you. Lord, give me the want to want you more. I can't even get that from inside here. If I leave it up to here, my heart will, will be deceitful. But Lord, through Your Holy Spirit, You can change me. Cause me to even want to yield. By the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, it becomes possible for us to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and not a citizen of the world. And therefore, we become people who join the ranks of the others that were in the world but not of it. And it's only possible because of what Jesus Christ has done. In a plan that came before the foundation of the world, the salvation, the sacrifice, the cross was there. Hundreds of scriptures in the Old Testament point to it. Jesus comes to it and fulfills it. And on that cross, He says the most powerful words, It is finished. When I understood that, I realized what it meant to be saved in a very shallow way even at that point, but I was grasping the truth. It is finished. Bob, there isn't anything you can bring to the cross, to the, to the table of, of, of conference and, and, and discussion that will add anything to your salvation. It is completed by the act of Jesus Christ. And what he's looking for, Bob... He's not looking for you to perfect that. He's looking to perfect you. And then I join again. Give me the desire to desire you, Lord. Give me the want to want you. I want to encourage you this. You know, we, as we go through and we're approaching uh, you know, Easter or two weeks away, we, we have Good Friday, we talk about the resurrection, we talk about uh, the, the, the passion of the, of the week of, of, of Christ and, and the cross. The, the death, burial, and resurrection, and all of these things that are so awesomely powerful in and of themselves. But they are only pictures and words until your eyes open up and you look at it and the Holy Spirit starts to make it clear that these things were done for you. Where you personalize it, you complain it, you confess it, you ask and say, Lord, I need this. And you enter into grace with Jesus Christ, your Savior. 
probably a reasonably good place to stop. And I ask that uh, the ushers come and, and that you would uh, help us enter into a time of sharing and communion by passing out the emblems. Let's hold them until we've all been served and then we'll uh, share them together.
I just uh, I know that this is just a personal reflection on that song in the sense of its context of scripture, but I had a picture in my mind of being before the throne of God and, and unable to lift my head because of the shame and the guilt and the sin. But because of what Christ has done for me, for you, for all who confess and believe, He lifts our head and lets us see our salvation. The night that He was betrayed, He gave us two pictures of what He was and doing for us. One was He used the bread as a picture of His flesh. Literally, God incarnate. God come in the flesh to be broken for us. And the idea of broken is not His bones broken. In fact, the the amazing thing was that none of His bones were broken. The men bones on either side of Him were broken to usher in their death quickly. God took Him without that. And there's a scripture that said not even his bones would be broken. So what is broken? His flesh is torn. It's broken for us in the sense of, of experiencing all the agony for us. But not enough to experience the agony, but to then purchase our salvation was to give his life. He came in the flesh. He took the bread after giving thanks. He broke it, gave it to the disciples. He said, this is my body. Eat it and do this in remembrance of me. But it's interesting, the scripture doesn't say life is in the flesh, it says that life is in the blood. And that there is not a full sacrifice until the blood is shed. All of the Old Testament sacrifices leading up to the cross were a picture of the reality of the need of shedding blood, but there was nothing good enough. It had to be done over and over and over again. But Hebrews tells us, once and for all, the one who said it's finished and said, under thee I commend my spirit, he shed his blood for us. The once and for all sacrifice. And he asked us as often as we do this, that we would do it in remembrance of him until he comes again. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to come to the table, not because we are worthy, but because you are worthy, and that in you, you make us worthy. You lift our head. Thank you. We don't come with false humility here. We realize, Lord, that who we are is, is, is fallen in man in the flesh until you enter in. And then you do an amazing thing. You save us. You usher us into, right then, right there, at the point in time of belief and confession, right then, right there, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, you usher us into the being citizens of the kingdom of God. And you open our eyes to your word that we might begin to understand and apply and to change to be transformed. All because you said it is finished and you did it for us a plan before the foundation of the world completed in you at the cross so that we will know salvation and as a result we will never know 
the fullness of the sense of our guilt and the wrath of our sins because you did it for us. You took it for us. You drank the cup of wrath for us. Thank you. And again we pray, Lord, give us that hunger to hunger after you and, and to seek you. And we realize, Lord, that as soon as we desire to seek you, you will reveal yourself because you've made that a promise. Seek me and you'll find. Ask and you'll receive. Knock, it'll be opened. But we realize we have to, to want that and that even comes through you. So we ask you, Lord, build the hunger in us for you. And then, Lord, give us the desire to share it with somebody else that doesn't know you. Looking, waiting for those opportunities that, that we would be bold for you, Lord. Not because we're so great in ourselves, but because we can share to someone else the hope that you've given us. We worship you, we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? I want to thank you for being here this morning. We have some refreshments in the back if you have time to visit for a little while. And uh, Lord bless, thank you for being here this morning. I'm still a little clammy. I'm not going to shake your hands or give you a hug. But I really appreciate you being here this morning. Lord bless. Stop.